0: So if you were here last week, um, you heard me tell the story, a really sad story actually, um, about my wife and this battle with chronic pain that she had in the first five years of our marriage. And um, you know, one of the most frustrating things in that experience uh, was the experience of trying to find someone that could help. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there, if you've ever dealt with chronic pain that nobody can figure out where it comes from. It's a very frustrating experience. You go from doctor to doctor, Uh, to chiropractor, to physical therapist, to specialist, to specialist. We went to all kinds of people to try to find her help. And every single one of them had some ideas about some things that my wife could do to help deal with the pain, but very few of them had any idea of where the pain was actually coming from or why she was experiencing it. It wasn't until we went to a rheumatologist of all people, I didn't even know what that was at the time, and the, this rheumatologist basically said, hey, here's the problem, there's some issues going on with support in her hip, and she gave us a suggestion to make it stronger, to make the pain go away, and from there, things started to go uphill for us. But man, until that point, it honestly felt like we were just like swinging a bat in the dark, you know? We're like trying to find out what the problem is, and we're like a blindfolded kid trying to hit a pinata, you know, and we have no idea what it is that we're swinging at. In today's text in Ephesians, I think Paul is going to talk very plainly about a struggle that Christians need to be aware of, a battle that we need to be aware of. I think he's naming it so that we as followers of Jesus know where we're swinging the bat and we know what we're swinging at. You know, last week Paul talked in Ephesians five in the beginning of chapter six, he talked about how the love of Jesus can slowly and subtly overthrow an oppressive empire when the people of Jesus will simply seek to embody the radical subversive love of Jesus. And then he's gonna turn a corner this week and he's gonna say, hey, but I want you to understand who the real enemy is. He says, "I, I know, I understand that you find yourself in the throes of an empire that makes it very hard for you to live out the values of Jesus. He said, but I want you to understand the real enemy that you are fighting beyond even the empire that feels so powerful and daunting. So let's look, Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10. This is what Paul says. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler's against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is the word of the Lord as we read in Ephesians chapter six. So we're gonna walk through this text with kind of three main points that we're gonna look at. The first thing we're gonna seek to examine is who is this struggle against? Who is it Paul is talking about? And we're gonna look at what are the schemes of this enemy that he's referring to. And then finally, we're gonna say, how do we stand against this enemy? So the, the who of the struggle, the what of the schemes, and the how do we stand? And we start with the who of the struggle. You know, Paul says it this way. In verse 12, he says, listen, this struggle, the word struggle there, it's, it's, like a, it's the word for wrestle. It's like this wrestling match, this battle that we're in. It is not against flesh and blood. And I think Paul wasn't deluded. He, he did not think that there was never a battle against someone who was in flesh and blood, a, a physical person. And I think Paul, if he would say it, I, I think he would be okay with saying, no, this is not only a struggle against flesh and blood. Because see, Paul understood the struggle with flesh and blood, right? I mean, this was a guy who understood what it felt like to be in a battle against other people, a guy who had been whipped and beaten and stoned a guy that would eventually be murdered because of his activity for the gospel. And so Paul understood the flesh and blood battle, but what he was saying to these Christians in Ephesus was, hey, the the struggle is not only against flesh and blood, there is something more going on. And he says, listen, even when you can see your enemy that is clearly a person before you, that there's something beyond them, there's something behind what is happening in this person's life. As I was thinking about that this week, I just kept thinking about that movie, The Wizard of Oz. You guys know this classic American movie, you know? And it's almost like when Dorothy and her companions find their way to the Wizard of Oz, they're in Oz and they come in. If you've never seen the movie, they walk in and there's the great Oz. And it's like this floating green phantom head with like fireballs shooting all over the place. And they're all terrified about what they see until Toto, God bless him, goes over and pulls the curtain back and they see exposed behind it is this little man controlling all these contraptions and levers, making himself look much bigger than he is. You see, the spiritual world, I think what Paul is saying is, listen, if you think the battle is only against flesh and blood, then you're going to miss something much bigger at work. He's saying, no, we need to have the curtain pulled back. And when we pull the curtain back, we will see that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. Now, here's what's interesting is that Paul doesn't seem like he's trying to convince his original readers of this spiritual struggle, of these spiritual forces. In fact, it's almost like he just writes about the devil. He says, yeah, you know, be be wise, be ready, be strong to make your stand against the devil's schemes. It's like this matter of fact statement that there is a devil. And that there are spiritual forces, they did not need convincing, partially because in the first century, this was just the common worldview, that there were good spirits and there were evil spirits. Uh, there was a spiritual world that was unseen by humanity. This was a common belief for Christians who would have been around when Paul was first writing this letter. But, you know, we are a little different than that, aren't we? We read this text and we don't know what to do with it. In fact, in our culture, if someone is talking about the problem of evil in the world and you start talking about demons and the devil, you're probably gonna be laughed out of the room. People are not gonna take you seriously. They're gonna think you're intellectually inferior, you're overly superstitious, overly religious, or just out of touch with reality. But I wanna state at the very beginning and make sure you all know where I stand and how I interpret this. You know, I believe very firmly in the existence of a very real devil. And I believe very firmly in the existence of very real demons. Now, some of you I know are already going, seriously? Like, ah, and you're tempted to kinda of tone me out a little bit, I just beg you, stay with me. I wanna, I wanna encourage you, if you're a person who has written off the idea of the existence of demons or the existence of a real devil, I, let me very gently just challenge you with a couple questions and a couple thoughts to think about. The first is this, you know, I would assume if you are here this morning, unless you were dragged here involuntarily or you were just hoping to get a date with the person that invited you, then I can assume that you either believe or you want to believe that there is a spiritual being who is good, who has your best interest at heart. And if you're here that you believe that or you want to believe it, and what I would ask is, why is it so far of a stretch for us to believe that there are spiritual forces who do not have our best interest at heart if we are so willing to believe that there is a good spiritual force that has our best interest at heart? the two don't have to be mutually exclusive see if there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see then it is very possible just as god is there it's very possible that there are some evil forces at work and we'll get into talking about who they are in just a minute but i want us to see that it is not foolish that just because we cannot see demons it's not foolish to say they don't exist because if that were the case we would have to say it's foolish to believe that god could exist The second thing I want you to consider if you've dismissed this belief of demons is that, have you considered that by dismissing a belief in demons or spiritual warfare, uh, then you are actually risking being rather culturally narrow and potentially culturally arrogant. And here's what I mean by that. In much of our world today, outside of Western cultures, it is still the widely held belief that there is a spiritual war, that there are spiritual forces, in fact, we, are, we potentially are in the minority in the world for people who do not believe in this. And I know in our culture, the last thing we wanna be accused of is being culturally insensitive or culturally arrogant. But in reality, if we walk around with our nose in the air to this idea of spiritual forces of evil, then we are actually snubbing many, many, many cultures in our world. And we're, we run the risk of being culturally narrow or even worse, culturally arrogant or culturally ignorant. The third thing I want you to consider if you've written off the belief of demons and the existence of uh, evil spiritual um, beings, then have you tried to reconcile that with your view of history? Now, here's here's what I mean by that. You know, our desire to dismiss the existence of the devil and the demons really is rooted in the modern Western worldview. That worldview finds its origins in the Enlightenment that swept across Europe 250 to 300 years ago, and you see. Modern enlightenment thinking assumes always that there must be some sort of natural cause for anything wrong with the world that we see. And so here's how that plays out. We look at the world and we say, oh, the evils that are being done in that nation, well, that's just because of an oppressive and unjust political regime. And if we could deal with the political system, then we can make things okay. Or we look at evils and the things that people do that seem so atrocious and we think, oh, that's, that's because of bad brain chemistry or something that's wrong in their brain wiring or oh, that's bad parenting or that's the culture they grew up in. And I think our goal in this, we wanna describe everything in either sociological or psychological or biological terms. And I think this comes from this place that as humanity, we really want to believe that there is a way to fix the problems of the world. And the Enlightenment began when we began to say, hey, if we could explain everything, if we could get rid of mystery, if we could get rid of superstition, then we would be able to explain the problems in the world and if we can explain them, then we can fix them. The problem with this way of thinking, although it feels very optimistic, the problem with this way of thinking is that if you look over the course of history since the Enlightenment, there are several problems. Just over the last century alone, our world has seen atrocious and evil acts from the Holocaust to multiple genocides and ethnic cleansings to countless acts of terrorism and mass shootings, we've continued to see these supposedly enlightened human beings still lie, cheat, steal, manipulate and backstab in order to gain political power for themselves. You see, our enlightenment has done very little to deal with evil that rails against humanity. The fourth thing I would encourage you to consider if you've written off the belief in demons or the spiritual realm, is just the story of Jesus himself. You know, if you're here, again, I would make an assumption that there's some part of you that's curious about Jesus. You know, Jesus, when you read his story, you'll find over and over again that Jesus saw evil not stemming from natural causes. Now, Jesus saw evil stemming from two different places, and one of them is quite shocking to us. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 19, this is the way Jesus says it. He says, hey, it is out of the human heart that comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft, lying, slander. Jesus says these things flow out of the human heart. He says, listen, the source of evil in the world is not this thing that humanity can fix because the problem, the source of evil is something that's broken deep within humanity itself. And it needs someone, we need someone to fix that brokenness. And so the first source of evil for Jesus was humanity itself. And the second were these spiritual forces of evil. You read the story of Jesus and you just see it over and over again. He's constantly casting out demons, rebuking demons, telling demons to shut up. You know, I mean, he just had this authority and power over them. He took them seriously, but he dealt with them very quickly. You think about the way that Jesus taught us to pray. You know, he. The Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And what does he say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from what? The evil one. Literal translation, the evil one. You see, Jesus believed in an evil one. He called him Satan. He called him the father of lies. He called him the enemy. Jesus clearly believed in his presence and he encountered demons. This is, you know, if if, if you wanna dismiss demons or the devil, then you have to dismiss so much of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. We are forced to dismiss many of the cultures in our world and the way that they approach life in the world. And we have to reconcile history with that belief that there's no other source of evil. So I think the Bible gives us this picture that there is very clearly a spiritual realm and there, are, there is a supreme authority, a good authority, God Almighty, the creator, who is part of that spiritual realm and he has our best interest at heart, but the Bible would also say that there are some forces in that spiritual realm who want to stand against us in every good thing that Jesus longs for in our life. Now, who are they? You know, the purpose of this text for Paul was not to unpack everything about angels and demons and Satan. And I think, I just want to give us two pieces of who they are. You know, the the story of the Bible is the story of God. It's not the story of Satan or the story of demons. But when we read the story of God and its overarching narrative throughout Scripture, what we find is some clues that we can put together to give us some understanding of who these spiritual forces are. And the first thing we need to understand is that they are created. They are part of the created order. They are created beings, just like you and me, just like the angels You see, demons, Satan himself, they are not all powerful. They are not omnipotent. They are not omnipresent, meaning they can be anywhere at all times. They are not those things. They are part of the created order. And as such, they have many limitations on them just like we do as humans. The other part of scripture would tell us is that they are part of the created order and that they they seem to be fallen angels. So they seem to be angels that were created for the purpose of serving in the kingdom of God for servitude to the king, and for whatever reason, they chose rebellion against the king instead of servitude. And those two things, I think, are two of the really only solid pieces that we get from the Bible. There are a lot of other clues and pictures, but almost everything else that you hear about who demons are and who Satan is, they almost are always speculative because we just don't know enough. But more important than understanding who they are is understanding how they work. You know, I think too often when this subject comes up, we either do one of two things with it. C.S. Lewis talked about this tendency of how we deal with the demonic at the beginning of his book, Screwtape Letters. He has this brilliant quote at the very beginning. This is what Lewis says. He says, you know, there are two equal and opposite errors into which humanity can fall when it comes to demons. One is to just disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, we either ignore them and pretend they're not there, or we obsess over them and what they're like. And what Lewis says, he says, you know, the demons themselves are equally pleased by both of these errors, and they will hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, the call is not to be obsessed with demons and Satan and trying to figure everything out about them, but the call is also not to ignore them and pretend that they're not there. Paul says, I want you to be strong in the Lord and mighty in his power so that you could stand against his schemes. So it's more important that we understand how he works than understanding everything about them. So, so what are their schemes? What, what do they do? What are these schemes that Paul is talking about? You know, what he says is, I want you to be able to stand against the devil's schemes. This word scheme is the uh, English rendering of the Greek word uh, methodia. It's where we get our word method. It is a plural word here. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, the devil has a multitude of methods, or schemes, or tactics, or strategies. There's not just one. He's got a full arsenal of tactics that he wants to wage against the people of God. I think the enemy is cleverer than we give him credit for. You know, he understands. He understands that the tactic he needs to use against a young woman that grows up in a rural village in Uganda is going to be very different than the tactic he would use against a young woman who grows up in an urban center in the United States. He understands that the tactic he would need to use against someone who struggles to believe in themselves and has low self-confidence is gonna be very different than the tactic that he used against someone who is overly confident or arrogant. See, the enemy is crafty. He has a full arsenal of tactics or methods at which he longs to come against us. Understanding these tactics, I think, is easier when we understand his primary weapon. One of the reasons we don't talk about the devil is because we don't really understand how he works and we're scared of that. And we find a clue into what his primary weapon is in his name itself. So here Paul uses the word devil, which is the Greek word diabolos. The diabolos, that's where we get our word diabolical. You know, the Greek word literally just meant a slanderer, a false accuser, one who is full of deceit, a liar. The Hebrew word was Satan, which is where we get Satan. And that simply also just means accuser. You know, the the idea here is that the enemy is the father of lies. That's why Jesus calls him the father of lies. You see, God spoke all things into creation with the power of his word. He spoke truth and life and things that were not yet suddenly came into being and it was beautiful and it was good. The enemy, the only weapon he has against the voice of God and the truth of God, are lies. And so that's why Jesus says he comes in to steal and kill and destroy. And we see this in the garden, the narrative at the very beginning, which tells us about creation, where humanity was first assaulted with a lie against the goodness and the promise of God. The enemy, evil, comes in and tries to get humanity to doubt the goodness of the promises that God has for them. You see, this is his tactic. This is his weapon. It's deceit lying, and he longs to use it against the people of God. Revelation 12 tells us that Satan has been defeated and that he has been hurled to the earth where he seeks to wage war against those who keep God's commands. That is the people of God. Those are the people of God, the people who seek to keep the commands of Jesus, and the enemy hates it. He is like a defeated king that knows he's defeated. See, in the ancient times when a king was defeated, what their enemies would do would cut their thumbs off because it was with a thumb that you held a sword or held a shield. And so they would take these kings they defeated and they'd cut their thumbs off and they would tie them up and drag them through cities to show their victory. But the more honorary and the more arrogant kings, they realized they still had one weapon and they would use their tongue to shout insults and try to tear down the people around them with their tongue. This is a picture of our enemy, the devil. He knows he's defeated at the cross of Christ and the resurrection and the empty tomb, and yet he is waging war against the people of God, leveraging his deceitful lying tongue to try to get us to doubt and disbelieve the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. So how does he do this? What are some of his tactics? Like I said, I think there's a lot, and I can't can't stand up here and tell you every single tactic of the enemy. I don't know that much, but I do know three that I want us to look at. Three schemes or tactics that I know that he uses they are accusation, temptation, and intimidation. Accusation, temptation, and intimidation. We're going to start with accusation. So how does the enemy use accusation against us as God's people? Here's the first thing that he does. I think accusation is this place where he tries to downplay the mercy and the grace of God and instead overemphasize the holiness and the justice of God. In other words, he comes to people who are believers and he would take some of the things that we've read in Ephesians and he would go, seated with Christ? You think that's where you are? You think you've been created into something new? You think you've received every spiritual blessing? You think that God has poured out his grace on you? Hey, you and I both know the things that you've done. We know where you've been. We know the secrets that you harbor in your heart, the secret things that bring shame upon you at night. You really think God is that merciful? You think he's that gracious? Because I promise you he's not. He's holy and he's just and he's a judge and he's gonna condemn you for the things that you've done. This is the voice of the enemy. And this is what he longs to bring against the people of God. Lies upon lies upon lies to try to dislodge us from believing in the promises of the limitless grace poured out for us in Jesus Christ. You see, the enemy would love to cause us to look more at our sin than at our savior. He causes this obsession with our past sins that we assume that God could never forgive. The enemy loves to make Christians think that they're being punished by God because of their sin. I've met Christians who say, "You know, surely this is all the result of my sin. The reason this bad thing is happening in my life is because God's mad at me because of the sin that I committed, and the enemy just laughs, and he whispers these lies, these accusations. I've met Christians, I've dealt with this myself, who think that their inner thoughts and struggles are not thoughts or struggles that a Christian should have. And the enemy comes in with accusation saying, see, I told you. If you were a Christian, then why would you still be thinking these critical thoughts about every person? Why would you still be thinking so poorly about everyone and judging everyone in your heart? You're not a Christian. If you were a Christian, then why would you still have this secret battle with lust that you can't seem to get under control where you just look at every single person of the opposite sex and all you think is sexual thoughts? You're not a Christian. A Christian wouldn't think that way. That's shameful. That's shameful. You are far from God. See, these are the enemy's lies. Do you recognize that voice? I know some of you hear that. I hear it in my own life. This is the voice of the enemy trying to rail against us with temptation. I mean, with accusation. You know, the next way, the next tactic that he comes at us with is with temptation. Temptation is kind of the reverse of accusation where accusation is this place where the enemy tries to get us to downplay mercy and upplay holiness or judgment. Temptation tries to overplay God's mercy and downplay his holiness. And he usually attacks us in the places of our pride or our selfishness. There's different ways that the enemy works in temptation. Uh, One of the ways that I've seen is kind of this idea of where he, he gives you the bait, but he hides the hook. In other words, he shows you the short-term pleasure and hides the long-term misery. I mean, the enemy never comes. He never comes to you and says, hey, let's go do some really bad things. You know, we've got this bad understanding of him as this man dressed in a red suit with a pitchfork that's like poking us from behind, trying to push us into things we don't really wanna do. That's not how he works. He holds out something that looks really good. He says, hey, this is good, short-term pleasure. You can have this. He says, Hey, go ahead and cheat on your taxes. Go ahead. It's not that big of a deal. The government doesn't need your money. They got enough money. It's your money. You work for it. And besides, no one's ever going to find out you don't make enough money. You're a struggling musician in Nashville, Tennessee. Your IRS is never going to come after you. You don't even make enough. Go ahead. Cheat on your taxes. See, this is what he does. He comes to us with this bait and he says, Hey, do this little thing. It's not that big of a deal and he hides the long-term misery that will come because once you bite in to the bait that is there, he hooks you. This is why the Bible says we are slave to the ones that we obey. And you become a slave to dishonesty, or you become a slave to impurity, or you become a slave to lust, or you become a slave to sexuality, and sexual immorality. You, you, you become a slave to whatever it is that thing you come after and you bite down on because the enemy has hid his hook within it. Another way that he comes after us with temptation is that you know, we begin to rationalize sin as a virtue. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I have a few times. He tries to get us to rationalize sin as a virtue. Here's what I mean. It sounds something like this. Well, I'm not really greedy. I mean, I know the Bible talks about greed. I'm not greedy. I'm just thrifty. I'm trying to be a good steward. Or he comes out us and it, you know, we, we, well, I'm not really nosy. I'm just concerned about this person. Have you ever done that before? I'm not a gossip, I just wanna make sure there's enough people praying for this person. (laughs) You know, we rationalize our sin as a virtue. I'm not an alcoholic, I'm I'm just social and I understand our culture and I wanna be able to reach our culture, so therefore this is the behavior that I pour myself into. And so he will tempt us and try to get us to rationalize our sin as a virtue or he'll get us to compare ourselves to someone else. Well, so-and-so did this, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy over there, so it's okay if I do a little bit of this. Or sometimes he will even try to leverage our suffering against us. He will get you to think, you know, I've suffered a lot in my life. Surely it's okay, God would understand if I just indulged in this. Fill in the blank. See, the enemy is a jerk, he's a liar. And he will even try to leverage your own suffering against you in order to lure you away from the promises of Jesus. Now, some of us may be sitting there going, well, I've, I've had all this experience, but Aaron, that's just me, that's just my thoughts. Those are my self-condemning thoughts, that's not the enemy. And you know, I've heard that argument a lot, and I think one of the places that spiritual warfare became most real to me was sitting in the counseling office. When I was a therapist and I would have clients in my office and we would talk through some of the things, they would be dealing with a variety of things, from addiction uh, to depression to trauma and the, the, the problems with trauma that come with it. And I can remember one of the things I commonly did with my Clients typically they were young men because I worked at a residential treatment center, I would have them write down the list of the biggest uh, experiences in their life that have shaped them the most. And they would go through and they'd start listing out these experiences that they'd had. You know, everything from when my parents got a divorce to that time that friend betrayed me To the time I felt rejected by my peers, the time I failed a class, the time that my dad never wanted to spend time with me on and on, there was all kinds of experiences. Or sometimes it was the hard things that people did to me, sometimes it was the hard things I did to other people. And they would list out these experiences and then I would say, now I want you to go back for each one of those experiences. I want you to fill in the blank. What does that experience, what message does it give you about yourself? In other words, you are fill in the blank. And it was amazing, they would go back and they would go through and they would start to fill it out. And when they would finish, they'd look at it and they'd go, oh my goodness, it's almost like there's a theme to my life. You are worthless, you are not lovable, you are incompetent, you are not worth it, you are not gonna be liked by anyone, no one is gonna take care of you, you have to take care of yourself. These themes that would show up in their life and we would say, it's almost as if somebody had a strategy that they were carrying out against you. You see, the enemy knows you. He's playing you. He knows the things that are gonna come after you and he will come at you with all he has because he's a liar and he's a jerk and he longs to dislodge you from the promises that Jesus holds out to you so freely. You see, accusation and temptation, they work together because once he can start to accuse us and give us these messages, well, then he knows he can come in. Hey, if no one's gonna love me, well, then I'll just find a way to feel love for myself. Hey, if no one's gonna take care of me, if God's not really there and doesn't care about me, then I'll find a way to care for myself regardless of what it costs anyone else. You see how he works. You see his strategies. So accusation, temptation, these are the primary strategies I think that we see at work in our culture that oftentimes we have no idea that there is a spiritual force behind the curtain who is waging war against our souls. But you see, there's this other tactic that he uses and I wanna speak on it briefly here even though some of us may have never experienced this, this tactic of intimidation. I hesitated to even include this this morning because I didn't even know how to talk about it completely. I'll just be honest. But I've seen it. I've seen it in my time in Africa, in Uganda, working in small villages with Christian pastors, where the enemy starts to use intimidation to try to make us think that he is bigger or more powerful than he is. To try to make us think that he has power that can overcome the power of Jesus. I saw this so clearly at a worship gathering in a, in, in a village church in Uganda. And some of this will make you some of you uncomfortable, and I'm sorry, but this is just what I saw. In the middle of worship, they're dancing, they're clapping, they're singing, they're praising God, and suddenly a young woman falls to the ground and begins convulsing and shrieking. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was not like an epileptic seizure. There was something different about it, the nature of it. It's like there was something else present. And the goal of it, I was shocked at how these Christians in Uganda, they just kept worshiping. I was like, they just kept worshiping. They just kept on going, music kept on playing, and several women got around her and started praying for her, and they invited me down, and I got down and started praying for this young woman. I'm like, man, I'm out of my league here. I have no idea what I'm doing, I'm praying for her. Eventually, they pick her up, and they carry her back to this other little partition in the church building, and they lay her down back there so that she could not interrupt the worship gathering because, see, they understood the tactics of the enemy. His only goal in doing that in the middle of a Christian gathering was so that it would disrupt the praise of Jesus, disrupt what he was doing and try to harm this little girl in the midst. And instead they said, no, devil, we're not gonna let you do it. They carried the little girl out. They ministered to her in the back of the room. Eventually she calmed down. She got back to normal. She was in her right mind. She walked right back out, sat back down on a bench and started worshiping Jesus. You see, there's this tactic of intimidation that is at work very much among our brothers and sisters around the world that we wanna turn a blind eye to that we have no idea about where he's trying to leverage some physical manifestations to intimidate and lie to them about the kind of power that he actually has. I think this happens in our culture as well, um, but it's harder for us to deal with. So here's what I know. I'm guessing there are some of you in this room that have experienced the intimidation of the enemy in very real ways. There are some of you that have had dreams in your life that terrify you. You wake up in the morning and you had these dreams and you don't know how to explain them and they almost paralyze you with fear. And maybe you've had them for a lot of your life. Maybe they're even reoccurring dreams. There are some of you in this room, in a room this size, I know this is kind of weird for some of us to hear, but I'm guessing there's some of you in this room that even see things that you don't know how to explain. I have a dear friend of mine that for most of her life, she had vivid dreams that terrified her. And she would see this same being that just followed her around all the time. She was scared to death to acknowledge it to anyone for fear that she would be labeled as crazy. And as we began to be in community with this woman, wife, my wife Amy and I got to know her very well. And what was amazing was that we began to discover that she actually had this amazing prophetic gift. She, for some reason, God gave her this ability to see into the spiritual realm in a way that other people didn't. And it was a gift from God, a gift that he longed to leverage for the sake of his people and the gift of prophecy to speak truths and words of encouragement to build his people up, but the enemy tried to intimidate her to think that she was crazy, that it was something she couldn't control, that she needed to be afraid. And I watched this woman begin to walk in freedom and exercise the gift that the Lord had given her because she realized the power of Jesus was greater than the one who was trying to intimidate her with lies. It's amazing. She had this amazing prophetic ministry. If you're here this morning and you have been intimidated and you've been afraid and you've not known what to do with it, man, may we as the American church repent of remaining silent and forcing some of our brothers and sisters into places of fear or shame because of what they experience. If you are here and you've experienced things that make you afraid, man, let's not be secretive anymore because the name that is above all names is accessible to us. The victory that is Jesus's is ours. And we claim victory over the enemy in his cowardly, deceptive tactics of intimidation, accusation, and temptation. Now, what do we do with all this? We looked at the, the who uh, or the what of the struggle and the, the what of the schemes. What about the how? How do we stand? You know, Paul says in verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand. You know, this is the beautiful thing that I think Paul understood. He understood that, listen, the only thing that overcomes evil in this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the gospel of Jesus Christ deals with evil directly at its source. You remember those two sources, the human heart and its brokenness, and the spiritual realms and their evil nature. He says, listen, the human heart is dealt with in the gospel because at the cross, Jesus takes on the consequences of our sin that flow from this evil that seems to be lodged in our hearts. And at the resurrection, he brings new life and he fills us with the spirit of God, restoring to us to our original intended purpose of being image bearers of God Almighty. This is the gospel of Jesus. It takes the source of evil and fixes it and makes it beautiful He takes our hearts of stone and he gives us hearts of flesh that are fully alive, beating with the heart of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of Jesus deals with the devil and the forces of evil. He silences the accusations of the devil at the cross by bearing the weight of our consequences. And at the resurrection, I love it because he crushes death, which the enemy has tried to leverage against humanity to make us fearful. Here's the beauty of the gospel, is that Jesus says, listen, because of the cross and the empty tomb, new life and hope even spring up in the middle of death. What is the enemy gonna throw at you? What does he have? Death can't even defeat you. Death will bring new life into you because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a name that is more powerful than any other name. There is a gospel that brings life in the face of death. There is a gospel that overcomes the enemies and his deceptive tactics against us. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, So that the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and below the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen, church. Do you believe in the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel? And so we enter into this conversation on how we take our stand and we do not have to come at it with fear. We don't have to come at it to be afraid. We understand that the power that we fight with is the power of Jesus Christ, but here's what I love. Paul says, find your strength in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the armor of God. And we're gonna talk next week all about the armor of God, but here's what we need to see this week, is that the strength that we have does not come by trying to make ourselves stronger. Spiritual warfare is not about us getting stronger, us getting smarter, or us getting craftier. It's not about self-talk, it's not about self-help, or us trying to enlighten ourselves more. It's actually about us saying, hey, I can't do it on my own. You see, the road to freedom in Jesus begins with admitting that I'm powerless to do it myself, that I need the gospel of Jesus. Will we as a church be willing to be made weak so that we can be made strong? Will we be willing to admit and confess that we need the power of Jesus. It begins with the humility of saying, I need a savior. so we're gonna go take communion right now. And as we take that bread and that cup, we are celebrating the victory of Jesus, which is available for every single one of us. I don't know what accusations you're facing. I don't know what temptations you're facing, but the enemy would love nothing more than for you to keep those in the dark and keep them silent and to continue to push you around with them. Let's come to the body and the blood of Jesus and let's just bring everything into the light. If there's an accusation that you feel the enemy's trying to accuse you, just share it with a brother or sister and let them pray words of life over you. If there's a temptation or a sin you're dealing with, man, bring it into the light because you've been freed from it already. Let the body and the blood of Jesus and the community of Jesus help you in that battle. And if you are being intimidated, come to the Lord and know that there is nothing to fear because he is victorious. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then we're gonna commune, and we're gonna worship, and we're gonna celebrate the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we love you. So, so grateful that you recognize the need in our heart, and you don't just turn away from us, but Lord, you come. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for healing our hearts and thank you for going to war against the one that seeks to deceive us. Lord, as you open our eyes to see, help us not to be afraid, but to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Would you come, Lord, to help us not to be naive, help us not to be ignorant, but man, help us to be faithful and confident. And trusting in you, may we leverage everything we have in our prayer and our walk with you and everything that we do to press ourselves more fully into the promises that you have for us and against the lies of the enemy. Come, Lord, come, minister to us right now as we commune, as we celebrate, and as we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.